0: Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 351 of Forgotten Classics, where we will delve further into The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. Before that, I actually have a podcast to recommend that I have been devouring. It is called Close Reads. This is a book club podcast featuring three people, Angelina, Tim, and David, who talk about great books. And of course, they're doing close reads of the great books. So one book will have multiple discussions of an hour, hour and a half, sometimes each as they talk about two or three chapters of the book. I do not remember how I discovered it. However, I'm listening to their discussion of Murder Must Advertise by Dorothy Sayers, and this is a favorite Dorothy Sayers mystery for me, mostly because I love the fact that it's told from the world of advertising and that Dorothy Sayers worked in advertising herself, so she's got an in-depth knowledge, and it features Lord Peter Whimsey, who is kind of, as has been described, a cross between Fred Astaire and Bertie Wooster from the Jeeves and Wooster stories. So, He's smarter than those two people make you think, but he's got that light, irreverent air. So for a murder mystery, it's pretty light. I was trying this one because I thought, I love it, but is it what you would call a great book? And if so, what are they finding in it? And oh my goodness, they're pointing out all these really obvious things that it never occurred to me to think about. And they have a great chemistry together, and just a light, enjoyable discussion style themselves. So very much the podcast just flows by with me laughing and smiling and saying, oh my goodness, I have to get that book from the library because I have not read it in so long. And I've read it a number of times because I know it well enough not to have to read it along with the podcast. But they've also discussed um, The Wind in the Willows, Pride and Prejudice, Everything That Rises Must Converge by Flannery O'Connor, and Those Are Not Light. And right now they've begun Brideshead Revisited, which people have told me a thousand times that I must read, and I do not really care for Evelyn Waugh's storytelling, but I might read it with these guys because they might pull me through it so I can see the value in it so I just thought I'd bring that up for anybody who comes across one of these books that they've been wanting to try to read or that they really love like you know the wind in the willows is an obvious one I'll put links to both their iTunes feed and to their page at their (laughs) the mothership so to speak of Searcy Institute, which promotes, you know, teaching and learning and Western literature and all this kind of thing so that you can go back through because the iTunes feed goes through the beginning of this year, but it doesn't cover 2016. And you can get most of them through the Circe Institute podcast feed. So I'll put that too, and you can pick them up there. Not all of them because they kind of have hidden... The way their feed works, so the really early ones you can't get, you have to listen to on your computer. Shame for shame. Anyway, give it a try if that's the kind of thing you're interested in. Now, back to our story, which is one of a very different sort of detective. First of all, she's female. Second of all, she seems to be interested in the people themselves rather than necessarily the mystery because we got another look last time as we began at somebody who wanted her to take on a divorce case. And she had some very interesting observations about divorce in general, such as she wasn't a big enough thinker to be able to discuss it. And the conversation they had was really enlightening. I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it had a lot of wisdom in it for a lot of cases, not for every case, of course. But then she gets a further human look at why she should take on the case of finding the emerald necklace. Again, we're drawn to the person making the request, not necessarily the solid mystery itself, though that's part of it. And as Millie goes on and starts to gather background information, she is pulled in again by the stories of the people. It's all about the people she's helped and why people are grateful or why people think she will be helpful in this case. Just a different way of looking. It's almost what you would call a cozy mystery, except it's not cozy somehow. I don't know for me anyway, you may feel differently. And if so, let me know. Now Millie is going to go to the source of the case. No more seeking for information through secondhand sources, let's get on the scene. And pick up your knitting if you want to take notes, because we know Millie's going to have her knitting with her. Let's dive in.
1: Chapter nine of The Green Jacket by Jeanette Lee. The clerk behind the glass case near the door in Daggett and Beals looked up a little cynically at the woman in grey waiting for an answer mr daggett is not at liberty he said suavely can i serve you in any other way with the slightest emphasis on the other she opened a green purse the clerk's eyes rested on the curiously wrought gold fittings it was an unusual piece of workmanship and his fingers had a trace of respect as he accepted the card she gave him and bore it toward the inner office his air was more courteous even a little eager, when he returned. "'Will you kindly step this way, madam? Mr. Daggett will be pleased to see you,' he said. The door of the inner office closed behind the grey figure, and the clerk, passing through the rows of cases holding jewels of fabulous price, wondered a little uncomfortably whether he had possibly been a trifle rude to the woman at first. She had looked so unimpressive when she asked for the head of the firm that he had expected at best a curt refusal to the card. But he knew his employer's face well, He had studied it for twenty-five years and he had seldom seen a keener look of pleasure than passed across it swiftly when he glanced down at the card show her in at once he had said promptly the door to the private office remained closed a long time the clerk glanced at it from time to time and wondered again whether he had possibly made a mistake and still the door remained closed he meditated bestowing a little courteous attention on the grey figure when it should emerge and he hovered near the outer door in readiness for it. The door of the private office at last opened, and the grey figure stepped out into the main room, and close behind it followed the proprietor himself, accompanying her between the cases, stopping here and there to comment or explain, or lift some piece for her inspection. In the most expensive section they paused by the case containing the most valuable gems in the store. The proprietor took out a set of pearls, and held them toward the woman in grey. The clerk, hovering with anxious ear heard plainly the words that accompanied the gesture the setting was like this only much more delicate it was one of the finest pieces of work we ever sent out the woman in gray examined the pearls closely she took a glass from her purse and ran it over the necklace carefully as if each detail of the exquisite fashioning of the gold interested her she returned it to the proprietor with a little smile thank you she said the clerk retreated nearer to the door to take advantage of any favoring chance but the proprietor accompanied her even to the very door and opened it for her with a little gesture of deference that the clerk well knew was reserved for incomes of at least five figures he even stood for a moment by the great show window watching the gray figure disappear in the crowd there was a thoughtful look on his face and a little smile and as he passed the case where the pearls lay in royal isolation on their velvet bed he paused again and looked down at them It seemed to the clerk that the look of approval he bestowed upon the pearls was not more generous than the one that had followed the grey figure disappearing in the crowd a moment before. The figure moved rapidly down the street toward the busier portion of the town. The green purse had been slipped inside her gown, and there was nothing to call the eye even for a flitting glance. No one who passed the figure could have recalled it, and no one would have noted when it turned into the downtown office. There were two or three pieces of work she must put in shape before she could leave for an absence of several days. It might even be weeks, she thought, as she entered her private office. The case had taken hold on her in a way she well recognized. Sometimes a case stood out from the others like this, and her mind seized on it with a tenacity that nothing could shake. It was the bulldog grip, she told herself. She was conscious of no reason why some cases should pursue her and compel her often to her own disadvantage, to follow to the end. Often she wished for someone who would forcibly detach her from a piece of work that was absorbing her time and strength, apparently to no purpose. A partner? She thought of Tom and smiled. Perhaps it was the thought of Tom and his disbelief in her ability to succeed that was setting her so grimly toward the solution of the mason case. Perhaps she had merely a feminine desire to say some day, I told you so, to the man who stood to her, for all the efficiency and masculine incredulity in the world, then the face of the woman who had sat in her office flashed back to her, the unshapely black hands in their wrinkled gloves, the strange, sad face, and she knew that Tom's cynical disbelief in her ability to succeed where he had failed was only a surface ripple on the deep-flowing purpose of her resolve to help the woman who had come to her in trouble. She rang the bell and called in her private secretary, and went over the work for the coming week the secretary was a small nervous young man who wore glasses and seemed perpetually stooping to something that threatened to evade him milly regarded him as a treasure she had tried several women and had rejected them one after the other for the lack of some quality she herself could hardly define she had found it only in teddy mclean his mind moved with her own not parallel to it or following along on the same track but leaping to meet hers almost in contest and out of the encounter she would find her ideas emerging in clear shape. "'I'm going to be away for a few days, Teddy,' she said as he came in. "'The Dexter case will need you,' he replied briskly. "'Not far enough along, is it?' He looked stubborn. "'Foster was in this morning. He said they will be ready to report tomorrow. They have everything safe, no suspicion, all the parties where they can lay their hands on them.' "'Better keep them there,' she was thinking swiftly. "'I want my mind free for a few days, Teddy.' "'You'll have to brace up and take more responsibility.' He looked dejected. She nodded. "'You can handle the Dexter case, all right. "'Till I get back.' "'How long are you going to be gone?' He was peering down and making swift notes. "'I don't know,' she said shortly. Teddy made another note and looked up. "'Shall I use my judgment about sending for you?' He asked. She hesitated. "'If it's necessary, absolutely necessary, "'and you're so stupid you can't handle it alone.' He smiled wanly and made the note. If you have to get me, telegraph. Miss Alice Brigham, care of Mr. Oswald Mason, Lincoln. He took it down swiftly. That's nearby. Can I telephone? No. Telegraph. Shall I use code? Mercy, no. I'm a seamstress, she said severely. Telegraph. Mother not well. Old trouble. Please come. The Skelton girl's making a lot of trouble, he said, looking over his papers. More than she's worth. "'What's she doing now?' asked Millie. "'Keeps bothering the life out of us, saying she's got to see you.' "'Well, she can see me, can't she?' He looked at her cynically. "'She isn't worth it. You've made a mistake this time, Miss Newberry.' "'Did I?' She looked thoughtful. "'I'm sorry. I'm not going to be here for a while. Could you get her for me now, right off, do you suppose?' He looked a little bored. "'I shan't have to try very hard. She's probably out there now, rattling the heads off em. "'Send her in.' he looked doubtfully at his notes i wanted to ask no don't ask me another thing you can take care of them yourself if you get stuck telegraph me i go out tomorrow morning now send in molly skelton if you can find her he departed grinning the next moment the door opened on a girl with high heels short skirts small hat a little to one side and hands thrust into side pockets as she came forward with short mincing steps she nodded brusquely how do, you do, Miss Newberry? They made a high old time about letting me in. You're not due till Thursday, are you? That's the day, said the girl. She leaned her elbow on the desk and stared at Millie with hard eyes. Her jaw shifted the gum between her teeth and chewed on it a little. Well, what is it? asked Millie. I'd rather be sent up for good, said the girl. Why, I ain't going to be coming here every Thursday, and all them guys out there, she waved a hand at the office, all knowing I'm on probe, I'd rather be locked up and done with it. Millie looked at her keenly. They don't know what you come for, she said. Nobody knows unless you've told them. The girl stared. Didn't you tell him No, not that Johnny with the glasses McLean? If he knows, it's your own fault. He may have guessed I have not told him or anyone as far as the office is concerned. You may be a client for whom I am handling a case or a detective coming to make reports. The girl grinned slowly, she chewed for a while well she drew in her breath that's fair enough why didn't you tell me that before she demanded she turned on her swiftly you didn't ask me said milly i supposed you knew i told you i should be square with you didn't i yes the girl's eyes dropped sullenly but i don't like it this sunday-school business trotting in here being told what to do milly's keen eyes were studying the rebellious face who is your new friend she asked quietly the girl flashed up a look "'I don't know as it's any of your business,' she said defiantly. "'Yes, I think it is my business. "'It's my business to help you keep straight, "'and you're trying to bluff me, "'for the first time since I've known you. "'You don't want to go to jail. "'If I took you at your word and told the police what I know—' "'She glanced up furtively. "'You wouldn't do it, Miss Newberry,' she said swiftly. "'No, I am not going to do it, "'but I'm not going to let you off from coming to me either. "'The man who told you to come and try to bluff me—' "'was simply making a fool of you. "'You are a silly child.' "'The girl was staring at the wall of the room, "'chewing swiftly. "'The weak lines of her face sagged a little. "'I didn't want to come,' she said slowly, "'but he kept at me, kept saying to do it. "'Don't blame the man,' said Millie sharply. "'Blame yourself.' "'Yes, am said the girl meekly. "'She looked down at the toe of her shoe "'and dug it in the leg of the table. "'How long have you known him?' asked Millie. "'Oh, about a week now.' A look of relief crossed Millie's face. "'You hadn't seen him when you reported last week?' "'Well, I kind of seen him,' she replied soberly. "'But I'm straight. Honest, Miss Newberry, I'm straight.' The defiance had left her face. Millie knew that for today she had won. The girl would be putty in her hands. But she would be putty in the hands of the next person, too. If she could see her every day for a while, she could tide her over. But a week? She shook her head. "'See here, Molly.' The girl looked up. You're a terrible bother to me. It's been over a year now. Goin on two, said the girl sullenly. And you let Sadie Batson off in three months. Yes, Sadie had a better start than you have, Molly. What do you mean by that? demanded the girl. I mean her father and mother, or her grandfather and grandmother, put better stuff into her. They're common folks, the Batsons, said Molly skeptically. Her mother works out. She's cook somewhere. "'Yes, but she or someone gave Sadie the power of holding out. "'You've got it, too, but you've got to do more of the work yourself. "'Nobody has done it for you, apparently. "'You've got to get a grip on yourself.' "'All right,' she said. "'I've got to be out of town for a while,' said Millie. "'Do you think I'd better send you out of town, too? "'This man will try to see you, I suppose?' "'Yep, he'll see me all right,' said the girl with a weak flourish of pride. "'He's dead stuck on me.' "'What is his name?' asked Millie. "'James Silliman, 346 Mill Street,' said the girl glibly. She grinned as Millie took it down. "'You'll catch him easy. He's done things enough to land him in jail any day.' "'Do you know that?' asked Millie. "'Or are you just talking?' "'I ain't just talking,' said the girl. "'Jim Silliman's a bad one, if ever there was.' "'Well, we shall look out for him. I think you would be better out of town for a while.' "'All right,' said the girl. "'Will it be pious ones?' "'I didn't like that minister's family you sent me to last time.' She looked at her hopefully. Millie smiled. Then she sighed. She rested her head on her hand and looked down. She was tired. The morning had been taxing, and there was still a personal problem to solve before she could get away. It would probably take most of the afternoon. She looked at the girl doubtfully. "'I wonder if you could help me, Molly,' she said slowly. "'Help you?' The girl turned quickly. "'What could I do?' I thought you might know of someone, some reliable person, I could get to stay with my mother while I am away. Our servant has the grip. I need someone to do the work and look after my mother's comfort. She is not very strong. You don't know anyone who is trustworthy, do you? The girl looked at it. She shook her head slowly. Not unless it's me, she replied. Of course you wouldn't call me trustworthy. Millie looked at her. I'm always doing things, she went on half-wistfully and milly's mind worked fast her mother's frail figure passed before her and the girl's shabby jacket and hat and the cheap high-heeled shoes that waited hopefully i'm a kind of good cook she volunteered i believe it might work said milly half to herself the girl nodded i'll take good care of her miss newberry you needn't be a mite afraid anything'll happen to her while you're gone i like taking care of folks doing for em then that's settled said milly with a look of relief Here is the address. Be sure to be there not later than three o'clock this afternoon. It's out of the city a little way. You take the holly car at Broad Street and get off at Chestnut. All right. The girl slipped the paper into the pocket of her flaunting coat. I'll go home and get my things together. I've got some other togs. You needn't be afraid I'll frighten the old lady with these. I'll take good care of her, Miss Newberry, you see. Her face was a glint with high resolve as she marched from the room. She did not even glance at the young man in eyeglasses as she passed him at his desk. The eyeglasses followed her reflectively. There goes some more of Miss Newberry's good time and strength, he said resentfully under his breath. And the girl, hurrying out of the building, was saying over and over to herself, You gotta get a grip on, Molly Skelton. You gotta take a hold. That's what she said. You gotta get a grip. And Millicent Newberry, gathering up her papers in the office, went over what remained to be done. CHAPTER X. The eight o'clock morning train to Lincoln was nearly empty. The woman in gray, seated by the rear door, glanced over the few people ahead of her in the car. They were the usual suburban characters. A cook going out to a new engagement, in her best hat, an old man with no particular occupation, a little boy and his grandmother, an architect and his assistant, and a drummer for laces. Millie's eye ran over them, and her mind settled down to the case that was taking her to Lincoln. She had been at home the evening before, and received Mrs. Mason's call on the telephone for the seamstress who had advertised for work in the evening paper. The voice had come hesitatingly over the wire, and Millie had had a vision of the woman in her black garments holding the receiver in tense grasp and listening with half-frightened face for the response to her call. She had thrown into her reply all the assurance and command the voice lacked, and the next words had taken the cue and become conventional and easy, and even a little expectant. "'You will come in the morning, then?' said the voice. And Millie, keeping in mind other ears that might be listening in convenient doorways, had replied, "'I shall take the eight o'clock out from the city. Is it far from the station to your house?' "'About five miles,' said the woman. "'You cannot walk. Wait a minute, please.' she had turned from the receiver and the murmur of voices vague and a little blurred came to milly's ear the man's voice seemed to demur a little and yielded at last half-grudgingly to the woman and she turned to the mouthpiece are you there yes the car will meet you for the eight o'clock from town then she had hung up and milly had remained a moment almost fancying that the surrounding atmosphere held something some hidden message to give her that the two voices in rapid colloquy and the woman's half-hurried words had failed to convey. Then she had put it all from her and gone resolutely to bed. She must not spoil the one good night's sleep that remained to her, for, once on the case, her nights and days would belong to it. She must be ready at any moment, night or day, to follow a clue. She glanced from the car window at the unfamiliar landscape that flashed by. She had never been on this road before it was not on the main line and even as a suburban line it was not important a brakeman in the doorway called out curtisville and she looked at her watch eight twenty five lincoln was the next stop and the end of the line the houses began to crowd close and run together the architect was rolling up a blueprint and the grandmother buttoned the little boy's coat with trembling fingers the station platform filled with people passed by milly's window the brakeman at the front end of the car was reversing plush-covered seats with a swift glance over the waiting crowd she took up her suitcase and moved toward the door she had noted a handsome car drawn up by the outer platform and a chauffeur with impassive face waiting beside it she did not move toward it at once but struggled a little in the crowd that surged toward the train and the chauffeur came forward he looked at her and hesitated and she lifted a meek seamstress glance to his face and straightened her hat that the crowd had somehow displaced she was little and helpless and inefficient is there a car for mr mason's here she asked this way said the man he reached down for her suitcase and disposed it in the car and sprang in beside it and waited almost impatiently it seemed for her to get in may i sit in front asked the seamstress timidly oh all right he moved over to make room and adjusted the suitcase a little and she stepped in beside him. "'We're in a little hurry this morning,' he said apologetically. "'Mr. Mason wants the car for the next train in.' "'He goes in every day, I suppose,' said the seamstress pleasantly. "'Well, pretty nearly every day. Skips a day, now and then.' They were skimming through a pleasant suburban district, and the man's gaze was fixed ahead. Milly noted that he had a clear, ruddy complexion, and she liked the look in his eye when it turned to her. But a wide experience in the complexion of criminals had led her not to place too much confidence in signs that might only be skin-deep she glanced at the lining of the car and made a little motion with her hand has it been relined she asked i've seen this make-up car before but not this lining it's very pretty it's this year's model said the man they bought it since i came milly's nod and smile gave him a little tribute of thanks for what his reply told her she settled comfortably in her seat watching the houses on either side They were farther apart now, and stood well back from the road, with driveways that wound through pleasant lawns. "'That's our place on the right,' said the man. The road curved sharply just ahead, and he nodded toward a house that showed dimly through the trees. They rounded the curve and passed along a high wall of stone, then he turned the car skillfully into a gateway in the high wall, and they were passing through the close-set shrubbery and high trees. Beyond the trees the house came in view again. It stood in open sunshine— painted white with doors and windows open to the air it had a hospitable waiting look and milly had a swift sense of its dignity and charm and its incongruity with the black garments and hunted look of the woman who had sought her aid pretty place said the chauffeur nodding toward it very she leaned forward scanning the open windows and the wide terrace that extended along the front and side of the house the terrace was brick-paved and surrounded by a low parapet "'covered with vines and flowers. "'From an opening at the front, two wide steps led down to the driveway. "'The whole effect was singularly gracious and pleasing. "'The house rose from its setting "'with a kind of restful dignity, "'and the vines and flowers gave to it "'the home-like beauty that was its dominating note. "'Millie's eyes studied the graceful lines "'with a touch of surprise and incredulity. "'She had come expecting a gloomy, forbidding place.' "'and the house standing there in the sun "'in the midst of its vines and flowers "'seemed the embodiment of homelike comfort. "'A figure appeared in the doorway "'and came rapidly across the brick-paved terrace to the steps. "'It's Mr. Mason,' said the man. "'Would you mind getting out here, please?' "'He brought the car to a stop by a side-path "'that led to the terrace, and Millie climbed quickly out. "'I'll bring your bag later,' said the man. "'But she reached up to it. "'I can take it, thank you,' She went slowly up the path to a side door, looking about her at the vines and flowers, and her glance passed carelessly beyond the flowers, and took in the tall, dark figure running quickly down the wide steps, and waiting in half-concealed impatience for the car that approached him swiftly. He threw open the door, spoke a quick word to the chauffeur, and the car rolled off. Millie's eyes followed it a minute, then she turned leisurely toward the house, A woman who had been standing behind the screen door watching her approach surveyed her through the meshes. "'Are you the new sewing woman?' she asked, and at Millie's response she opened the door half-grudgingly, it seemed, to admit her. She led the way down the hall to a small room at the left. "'You will work here,' she said, throwing open the door. Millie looked about the room with a quick glance. There was a low fireplace at the right, and at the left two French windows opened to the terrace." through a door opposite the one by which she entered she had a glimpse of a breakfast-room the table still uncleared and through another door at the right she could see the front hall and the long stairway leading from it to the floor above in the glance of the eye that took in her surroundings she had turned to the woman with a smile what a pleasant room she exclaimed yes it's pleasant enough returned the woman there was something almost defiant in the glance and tone you sleep at the top do you want to go up she asked Milly motioned to her suitcase. "'I want to get at my sewing things and wash my hands. "'Yes, I'd better go up now. "'Then I shall not need to trouble you again.' The woman made no reply. She preceded her down the long, cool hall and up a flight of stairs at the end. She set her foot firmly on each step and lifted herself by a little perceptible effort. She was middle-aged and bulky, and there was a look of obstinacy and reserve in the wide back that milly regarded thoughtfully as she followed it up the two flights of stairs to a room at the top here's where you sleep said the woman she threw open a door thank you i can find my way down quite well now if you will tell mrs mason i am here she knows you're here said the woman she saw you come she turned away heavily and milly heard the sound of her asthmatic breathing come faintly back as she descended the stairs milly stood for a moment her hand on the door listening to the sound as it moved along the hall below and passed out of hearing. She closed the door and looked about her with satisfaction. The room was perfectly located. To reach it, she must pass through corridors, opening on all the rooms at the rear of the house, and the sewing room below evidently gave her the range of a large part of the front of the house. She stepped to the window and looked out. Below her lay the brick-paved terrace, gay with its vines and flowers, and beyond the terrace sloped a wide lawn reaching to the trees that guarded the entrance beyond the trees and the high surrounding wall she caught a glimpse of distant hills it was a peaceful scene flooded in sunshine the sunshine poured in at the window where she stood and the little breeze that came with it brought a hint of flower scents and fresh-cut grass she turned away from the window and unpacked her suitcase quickly placing the few articles it contained in the closet and in the drawers of the empty bureau where they seemed lost in the generous space The house below was very still. Not a sound broke its quiet as she moved about her room. She poured water into the basin and washed and dried her hands and returned the towel to its rack. All her movements were deft and swift, and all her finer senses were reaching out into the stillness of the mysterious house, gathering up its impalpable signs and testing them for the life that lay behind them. She cast a glance about the room and took a chintz-flowered bag from the bed, from one side of its ribbon-hooped handles the ends of two long amber needles protruded and through the opening at the top a bit of green-coloured wool was visible she slipped the hoops carelessly over her arm and passed out to the hall leaving the door open behind her into the sun-filled room the doors to all the other rooms along the upper corridor were closed a large window at the farther end let in a flood of light everything was cheerful and airy there was no hint of anything concealed or mysterious that waited in the rooms below it was a comfortable country house well lighted and well aired its only anomaly was the preternatural stillness that reigned throughout it above and below as she went slowly down the stairs listening for some sign of life she saw through the railing that the hall of the floor below opened into wide corridors and when she reached the junction of the corridors the open doors on either side revealed glimpses of chintz hangings and the dark polished surface of wood the house and all its furnishings were more artistic and more important than the appearance of her client had led her to expect as she stood hesitating which way to go she caught sight through one of the open doors of the dark folds of a woman's gown moving hazily and the next moment the woman herself appeared in the door she held out her hands in a swift gesture almost of welcome and Millie moved quickly toward her, ignoring the outstretched hands. "'I am the sewing-woman,' she said respectfully. "'Are your dresses in here?' She spoke very clearly and distinctly. A faint sound of asthmatic breathing in the distance, that had seemed to halt for a moment, moved softly away. The woman in the doorway had retreated a little, looking at Millie with puzzled eyes. The outstretched hands dropped to her sides. "'I will get what you have ready,' said Millie practically.' "'and take it with me to the sewing-room.' She stepped quietly into the room, leaving the door open behind her. "'Show me your dresses first, she said. "'I will work on those to-day.' The woman, after another puzzled glance, went to the wardrobe and opened the large door. "'I have almost nothing,' she said apologetically. The wardrobe was nearly empty. Two or three handsome dresses in the style of a year or two past dangled from the hooks. There were no black garments.' "'Millie glanced toward the black gown the woman was wearing. "'She stood nearby, waiting, her hands clasped loosely before her. "'Seen without the black hat and the ill-fitting coat of the day before, "'the figure was finely impressive. "'The simple lines of the dress and the open neck without ornament "'brought out a grace that the clumsy outer garments had concealed. "'She was gazing at Millie with the little puzzled bewilderment in her face. "'I wanted to talk to you,' she said in a low voice. The words were scarcely audible. "'Yes, we will have plenty of time to talk by and by. Do you want these altered?' She indicated the dresses of outworn style that hung pathetically from the wardrobe poles. "'Oh, I don't know.' The woman took a step forward, looking at them doubtfully. "'I gave away the others, everything, except these. But these were so expensive.' She regarded them uncertainly. "'I don't want to wear colors. she murmured. "'Very well.' Millie shut the door on the dresses. We will work on something else. Perhaps you have some white work? The woman brought a handful of undergarments, and Millie selected those that needed mending, going through them rapidly. She noted that everything was of the finest material and expensive, as if whatever came near the woman must be exquisite of its kind. These will do, she said, gathering up those she had selected. I would rather have a dress. She looked attentively at the black folds of the woman's gown, i could alter that a little it is loose here she touched the shoulders i have grown thin said the woman i will put on a kimono if you would rather work on this i have no other dress to put on milly nodded that will do very well bring it to me in the sewing-room when you are ready she moved toward the door with the undergarments on her arm there was no one in the wide corridors and no sound of faintly asthmatic breathing came from the distant region beyond she turned back quickly "'Was this the room where the jewel-case was kept?' she asked. The woman's hand moved to a toilet-table between the windows. "'It stood there. "'And where is it now?' "'In that cabinet.' She motioned to a handsome ebony cabinet that stood by the door. "'Unlocked?' "'No, I have the key.' She lifted a hand to the bosom of her gown. Millie nodded. "'Bring it to me with the dress. I shall want to come here again later. You will lay out work for me on the bed.' "'and I shall come and go between this room "'and the sewing-room for a while.' "'The woman, who had unfastened the neck of her dress "'and was pushing it back, paused. "'I forgot,' she said quickly. "'I shall need this dress to wear. "'I have no other, "'and I promised my husband to go motoring with him. "'When do you go?' "'This afternoon. "'He will be home for luncheon,' he said, "'and then we start at once.' "'No, that will hardly give me time,' "'said Milly thoughtfully. "'I do not work very fast.' She smiled a little. Her eyes were on the woman's neck. The open gown revealed her throat, white and fair as a girl's, and from the neck a slender gold chain hung down, the end lost in the white folds below. Millie's hand made a gesture. Is that the key? Let me have it, please. The woman lifted her hands to the chain and unfastened it and drew it off slowly. Two small keys depended from it. She held them out with a mute gesture. No, keep the chain. Millie withdrew the two keys swiftly and dropped them into the bag on her arm. She handed back the chain. "'Put it on again,' she said. "'Someone might miss it from your neck. We must be careful not to put anyone on guard.' The woman replaced the chain with fingers that trembled a little. Millie's eyes followed them quietly. "'Don't be afraid,' she said. "'Nothing shall happen to you, and perhaps when the case is unlocked, the necklace will come back to it.' The woman shuddered a little. Her arms dropped to her sides. "'I would almost rather never see it again,' she whispered. "'I am afraid.' Millie placed a hand on her arm and held it firmly. "'You are not to be afraid. Trust me, and remember, nothing is to be done that you and I do not both agree to.' The look of fear in the woman's face dissolved swiftly. "'Oh, if I had only known you before,' she cried softly, "'if I had known you, she might have been saved.' She motioned to a photograph on the table by the window. She was looking at it with moist eyes. Millie reached a hand to it. "'When was it taken?' she asked. Oh, three years ago, perhaps.' She stood looking over Millie's shoulder. "'I have had it a long time, but I only had it framed the other day, when I came back from seeing her.' She was gazing tenderly at the pictured face that seemed to return the look with one of wistfulness. "'It's all so different now,' murmured the woman. She motioned to the silent hall outside. Sometimes I think I hear her voice, and I start up and hurry to the door before I remember, even now. Millie put down the picture and turned toward the door. I must go, she said. We must not talk together too long. The servants will suspect. They are all at the back of the house, returned the woman. So much the better. Millie stepped into the wide hall. At one end the sun poured in. At the other, the branches of a great elm showed dark against the light. She turned toward the front staircase and went slowly down, passing through the intervening rooms to the sewing room. The door from the breakfast room had been closed by someone, and she opened it again. She placed her chair where she could see into it, and out through the other rooms to the hallway and the stairs leading up from it. Sitting in the shaded quiet of the sewing room, the grey figure blended into the quiet of the house no one passing through the halls or outside along the terrace and seeing it through the open french windows would have given a second thought to the new seamstress with her head a little bent to the work in her hands and her swift needle plying back and forth in the white garments she was a model of unobtrusive diligence one by one she finished the garments and laid them on a chair beside her the last one was in her hand and she was rethreading her needle to begin when a horn sounded among the trees and the swift whir of an approaching car came to her through the open window. She glanced at the watch on her wrist. Twelve forty-five. Sounds of preparation for luncheon had already come to her from a room beyond the hall. Silver and china handled with soft clearness and a subdued murmur of low voices. She laid aside the garment and took up the chintz bag and drew out her knitting. She adjusted the needles with quick touch and began to knit. Looking now at the flying stitches, and now out through the french window at a car that was passing swiftly half hidden by the trees it emerged on the open drive the man sitting beside the chauffeur was the one who had driven away to take the train when she arrived he had much the same hurried air as when he left and when the car stopped he sprang out with a quick nod to the driver and passed rapidly up the terrace from her place in the sewing-room milly had a glimpse of him crossing the hall with swift stride and ascending the stairs his steps turned at the top and sounded along the upper hall and a door at the front of the house closed with a muffled resonant sound as if the closing of the muffled door had been a signal the whole house woke to life somewhere at the rear an echoing door slammed swift feet hurried along the corridors voices came from the outer yard in the garage and presently the low notes of a chinese gong sounded through the house wooing the silence with long pulsing roll and a black dress was seen descending the stairs. A minute later, the tall, thin figure of a man hurried quickly down. The unrest settled to silence, and Millie's needles held it and went back and forth and knit it into the green wool. Her eyes followed the needles with intent gaze. Presently she looked up. The woman who had admitted her in the morning stood in the doorway of the hall, a large tray held before her. There had been no sound of her approach. "'Here is your lunch,' she said she placed it on a side-table and went quickly out. Millie moved the table nearer to the place where she had been sitting and where she could see through the French window onto the lawn and along the winding driveway beyond. There were sounds of the finishing of luncheon and a little coming and going on the stairs, and then she saw the car pass swiftly down the drive. The chauffeur was alone on the front seat. On the back seat was the woman in her black hat and veil and coat, and beside her the figure of the man sitting protectingly near to her. Millie finished her luncheon slowly, lingering over the dessert of rice pudding and dates. Before she had finished, she was conscious again of the soft step without sound and the quick, puffy breathing nearby. She did not turn or look up until she had taken the last spoonful of the pudding. Then she pushed the table a little from her. I'm through, she said, thank you. Then, for the first time, the woman came within range of her eye this is delicious pudding said milly will you tell the cook it is the best i ever ate i always thought my mother made the best rice pudding in the world but this beats it the woman who had bent to take up the tray paused almost surlily it seemed yet with a little relaxing of the glum face i made the pudding she remarked dryly oh milly stared a little at the face so near her own are you the cook she asked doubtfully i make the desserts replied the woman with a note of reserve miss annie likes me to miss annie milly gazed questioningly miss mason she's miss annie to me replied the woman she returned the gaze of the sewing-woman almost hostily and lifted the tray from the table milly watched the retreating back with reflective eyes can you tell me the back paused but did not turn do you know whether mrs mason left some things in her room for me to mend if she did you'll find em where she left em responded the woman i can go up can i asked milly the woman turned do you want me to wait on ye? she demanded no indeed milly glanced quickly at the heavy tray i am afraid i have made you too much trouble already the woman's face was a little mollified i don't mind doing it for you her glance passed swiftly to the mended garments piled on the chair i could have done them for her as well as you milly ignored the resentment seeking only some sign in the heavy face to guide her i don't think she wanted me to do them she laid her hand on the pile of clothes beside her she wanted me to alter the dress she has on but she hasn't any other to wear while i am doing it it is too large in the shoulders the woman rested her tray against the side of the door pressing upon it with her bulk to ease the weight on her arms she's grown thin she said but whether there was sympathy or resentment or a kind of fear in the wheezy voice milly could not determine i imagine there will be plenty for two pair of hands she glanced at the pile of sewing so any time you are free to help out i can turn things over to you the faster we get on the sooner i shall be done and can go home the woman looked at her slowly with eyes that were half veiled it seemed to milly i am busy this afternoon she replied and she turned and went quietly down the hall only the sound of wheezy breathing came faintly back and grew fainter and died away CHAPTER Eleven, The seamstress went to the French window and stepped onto the terrace. Her arms and back were stiff from the unaccustomed work, and she moved them gently, freeing the muscles and drawing in deep breaths of fresh air. She paced once or twice across the terrace, thinking swiftly. The woman's look puzzled her. There had been something almost hostile in it as she turned away. But perhaps it was only imagination. A detective grew to think things significant that other people passed over as natural. She returned to the sewing-room and gathered up the pile of mending, and taking the chintz bag on her arm, went softly into the hall. There was no one in sight, and after a moment's hesitation she turned toward the stairs at the back of the house. She had decided to use sometimes one staircase and sometimes the other. The servants would soon become accustomed to seeing her in different parts of the house. The sooner she established her habits, the better." but she saw no one as she went up the stairs and along the wide corridor toward the front that led to Mrs. Mason's room. Through the open door she could see the pile of work, stockings and sheets and pillow-slips laid out for her on the bed, but she passed the open door and went leisurely on to the big window at the end of the hall, and stood for a minute looking out onto the grounds. When she turned back slowly her glance fell on an open door at the right, and she checked a swift start of surprise instead of the chintz hangings and flowered wall-paper she expected to see her gaze had encountered walls lined with books leather bindings covered the walls from floor to ceiling and books lay everywhere on tables and chairs on either side the fireplace stood two great leather chairs and between them a large writing-table it was a man's room the room of a man of scholarly and aesthetic taste the impression conveyed to her between the two steps with which she passed the open door could not have been more vivid had she seen the owner of the room himself sitting in one of the deep chairs before the fireplace the room revealed a personality of unusual interest she passed down the hall thinking swiftly nothing in mrs mason's appearance had prepared her for the character of the house as a whole and least of all for this room she had just glimpsed into it was evidently the inmost possession of the man whose personality planned and dominated the whole she recalled the owner of the house. There was something almost ascetic in the tall, thin figure she had seen at a distance, but the open door revealed a quiet charm and richness of interest in the life of the man who possessed it. At the door of Mrs. Mason's room she paused with a swift glance up and down the hall. Then she stepped swiftly in, crossed to the bed, and laid down the pile of garments she carried on her arm. She looked back to the door. The key was in the lock, and as she stepped back and closed it, the lock shot noiselessly in place while her other hand released the handle of the door not a sound had broken the quiet and her step on the floor was very light she drew the two keys from the chintz bag on her arm and turned to the cabinet by the door stooping softly to examine it the lacquer-work about the escutcheon of the keyhole was unmarred by any scratch or any trace of tampering even under the glass she applied to it only the perfect finish of its age-worn surface was revealed It was a beautiful specimen of early Japanese art, and her eye dwelt on it appreciatively, before her fingers inserted the key and the door swung open on the multitude of drawers and little compartments with which it was filled. Her eye ran quickly over the surface of the drawers. It paused at one on the right that showed a little dull in the full light of the window behind her. Her hand reached to it and drew it out, revealing a bronze jewel-case within. She lifted it noiselessly and carried it to the window and unlocked it brilliance and color flashed from the lifted tray diamonds glittered in pins and rings and on one side a magnificent bracelet glowed with slumberous stones they darted red gleaming eyes as she lifted it and turned it in the light she stood looking down at the wealth shining out from the box thinking a little grimly of the foolishness that led women to keep such temptation for burglary always at hand close to the very place they slept she glanced toward the bed where the work for the new seamstress lay she must not waste time she had assured herself that what she expected was true neither the cabinet nor the box itself had been tampered with whoever had removed the necklace from the box had had access to it at some time when the box was unlocked she removed the key examining it carefully it was a curious foreign design but a duplicate could easily have been made she dropped it into the bag on her arm without doubt the box was self-locking she reached her hand to the lid to close it and stayed the hand a sound light as air had caught her ear she turned from the window and her glance ran quickly to the cabinet and to the door beside it the silvered knob of the door was turning slowly creeping breath by breath in a noiseless circle to the right it came to a stop at last and she could almost feel the tension and pressure of unseen fingers upon it she held her breath watching it retrace the circle and come to rest she moved silently to the cabinet and replaced the box, locking the door upon it and dropping the key in her bag. Then, with a single swift movement, she had reached the door of the room and unlocked it and thrown it back, stepping quickly into the hall. There was no one in sight in either direction. No motion of drapery, no hint that someone had hurried swiftly down the hall. On either side the open doors led into vacant rooms. What might lurk in them, concealed by furniture, crouching behind ample folds of chintz, she had no means of knowing, and no time at present to determine. She gathered up her work from the bed and stepped into the hall, making her way quickly past the open doors. She did not glance into the rooms on either side as she passed them, and she did not return again to the upper floor. Whatever suspicion had been roused against her must have time to subside. And perhaps there was no suspicion. A curious maid may have seen the closed door and tried the knob and gone away, or the woman who had brought the tray to her for the rest of the afternoon the seamstress sewed quietly in the room off the terrace but her thoughts ranged the house gathering up and focusing the impressions that had come to her out of its open mysterious quiet and each time her thought returned curiously to the woman who had admitted her in the morning and who had served her luncheon almost grudgingly it seemed only once during the afternoon did she have a glimpse of her when she came down the hall to the door at the end and stood for a moment gazing out As if looking for the return of the car. Then she disappeared into the back of the house, and Millie did not see her again. But the thought of her remained persistently, and at dinner time, when she brought in the tray and placed it on a table, Millie studied the downcast face with quick glance. There was nothing in the heavy, almost sullen lines to reward her. The woman did not look at her or speak. Perhaps in the half dimness coming from the lighted hall, she had not seen her where she sat across the room. She went quickly out. The gas was lighted through the lower rooms, and Millie could see occasional figures come and go. A short, stout man, a little bent and bald, and wearing evening clothes, hovered in the distance. A trim maid came now and then, and received instructions from him, and went away on swift feet. Sitting in the dusk of her sewing-room, Millie watched the by-play, and pondered on the ways of this strange household, in which, with a butler and a maid, the woman who had admitted her in the morning, was detailed to make desserts, and to carry meals to a sewing-woman who happened to be in the house. She glanced at the table where her dinner stood waiting, and rose and put away her work. She closed the doors into the hall before she lighted the gas, and sat down to the ample dinner the woman had provided for her. Evidently her distrust, or dislike, of the new seamstress would not take the form of starvation diet for her.